You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. raised in the 70s, you probably were in a youth group that had that um, Thief in the Night movie. Did anybody in here remember the Thief in the Night movie? Am I the only one? Yeah, I knew there was at least one other couple. Scared me to death every time they showed it. One was going to be left behind and one would get to, always the, the enduring memory is of the woman who's in bed and she wakes up and the alarm, when the alarm goes off, and everything's really quiet, and she's the last one left. Or if you were raised in the 90s, you've got the Left Behind series. And, yep, that's got <laughs> So your whole theology of the end times was shaped by a guy who was writing fiction, mostly. <laughs> or if you were raised in some traditions, you got one of those plays, those in-person plays, where they had the guy with the playing the, what was it called? Hell's Fury, that's right, that's right, literally trying to scare the hell out of you. (laughs) And if you're one of those, you bring all of that to Mark chapter 13. My prayer for you is that by the time we get to the end of this worship service, you will see it as a grace and a gift and a call to be awake and a call to to be involved with the great moves of God. It's true. Listen, things fall apart. The sinner cannot hold. Yeats was the first one to write that line of poetry, and it it could well be the moral of Mark chapter 13, which is called the little apocalypse. So if you've got your Bible, you want to write that heading over chapter 13, you can do that. It's called the little apocalypse. Don just read it for us. That line comes from a famous line, the one I just read, Um, from William Butler Yeats called The Second Coming. And this is the first stanza. I want to read this, just this first stanza for you. He writes, Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. Years, I mean, the, the years that, that when Yeats wrote that poem, 1919, World War I had just ended. The Russian Revolution was in full swing. Political turmoil in Ireland, which was Yeats' native country. None of the usual rules seemed to apply. Sanity was frayed. The center felt like it would not hold. Surely this is the second coming. I suspect that that's the sense of this chapter in Mark. It isn't that Jesus thought the end was near, but he could feel the restlessness of his of his followers toward that idea and that restlessness is not let up every single generation since Jesus first said these things that he said about the end times every single generation feels it looks at the world and wonders can this be it surely the sinner cannot hold surely the second coming is at hand 
Even Homer. We want answers. Something we can depend on, plan for, predict, and anticipate. And that's the mood Jesus is speaking into when he shares with his followers what the end will be like and what matters in the process of waiting for it. So let's look at this chapter together. You're going to need your Bible, something to write with, something to write on. That's always the best way to engage the message. We're in Mark chapter 13, and we're just going to read the first couple of verses. So look with me at Mark 13, 1. Then, sorry, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So here Jesus and his friends walking through the temple, which is clearly not a warehouse, stunned by the size of the stones used to build that massive structure. Those stones were, um, they, they said, are, were comparable to the stones used to build the pyramids. I mean, they're huge. And at this very time, things around them seemed to be falling apart. There were false prophets, and there were wars and rumors of wars and famines. Palestine was in a dangerous place. And closer to home for these guys, there were Things were not looking so good for the ministry of Jesus. They've dealt with serious opposition, wars and rumors of wars against them. So with everything feeling like it was going south, these stones, these stones seem so solid. Look at this, Jesus, this temple. Surely it will hold. Isn't it magnificent? It might even have been the sense that the stability of the temple could save them. So there's a side principle here, a side spiritual principle, which is that faith doesn't save us from hard times. It saves us in hard times. It matters what we attach our faith to. Most things, most people will disappoint us. Let me get an amen on that. Jesus tells them, you'll be amazed how quickly all this will crumble. And it did. The destruction of the temple in 70 CE was as devastating as the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE. I would say that Jerusalem hasn't recovered yet from the destruction of the second temple. It's still wobbling. Things do fall, uh, fall apart, even for faithful people. The things we think will never fall apart will fall apart. Marriages fall apart. Relationships we thought were invincible will fall apart. Jobs we thought we'd keep forever fall apart. Finances collapse under the weight of medical bills. And bodies that, cause the, uh, bodies that fall apart create those medical bills. And faith isn't designed to save us from those hard things, but to save us in them. Some of us are still wobbling from things that didn't hold together, that we were sure would hold together. So the lesson of the temple is this, things fall apart, but we don't have to. 
What Jesus is about to tell his followers and Mark is for us too. When it seems so hopeless, so hard, what we choose to lean on for comfort and confidence makes all the difference. I'm remembering something G.K. Chesterton said about worldview. He said that when the wind is blowing and the branches of the trees are waving, there are two kinds of people in the world. One group believes the wind moves the branches. The other group believes the motion of the trees creates the wind. For most of human history and in most parts of the world today, I need to say, Chesterton was writing 100 years ago, about the time Yeats was writing. He says, in most parts of the world today, people adhere to the former view. The consensus has been that the invisible lies behind and is the source of the visible. Only recently, and particularly in the West, has the latter view emerged that the motion of the trees creates the wind. Unfortunately, Chesterton says, this recent view has had a profound and pervasive influence on Western culture. It has also profoundly influenced and shaped Western Christianity, turning most of us into practical, functional deists. In so many areas of our lives, we find it easier to believe that the trees move the wind, that our feelings or our worries can somehow affect reality, or that the circumstances in which we live can actually change the way the world turns. We live as if the trees create the wind rather than the wind moving the trees. Does this make sense? So when Jesus tells his followers that this magnificently built temple will crumble one day, what he means to say is, You've got to learn to look beyond the signs because you can too easily misread them or, or actually create signs that have nothing to do with what Jesus is trying to do. I can tell you as the pastor of a church, I have set up my own litmus test for what success looks like. Meanwhile, Jesus is way over here going, hello, Carolyn. I've created a whole list of signs that mean things are going well that may have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. We can fall into the temptation of believing that our signs will move God. So learn to look beyond the obvious, beyond your feels, to what God is actually doing in the world. Look for God because the wind moves the trees. Look at verses 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us. I mean, they're just looking out there at that temple. Like, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? They asked him two questions. When will these things happen? And he answers those questions in verses 5 through 23. And the second question, what will be the sign? And he answers that question in verses 24 to, 20, uh, to 37. And, and so Jesus jumps in. He quotes Old Testament prophets, especially Daniel and Isaiah, a lot in this chapter to help us see 
that God keeps his word. God is consistent. He keeps his promises, and he works from a plan. He's not some random agent. The trees don't move the wind. He's not a temperamental God who reacts to the world like a two-year-old pitching tantrums. He has a plan for this world and for us. And when I say that God has a plan, I'm not saying that God has every detail of your life mapped out and that you're in an elevator and the, the button has already been pushed up, and, up or down and there's nothing you could do about it. That's not what I'm saying when I'm saying that God has a plan. What I'm saying is that God is not inconsistent. He's not up there clueless waiting for you to act so he'll know what to do next. Even when I don't see a way through, when I can imagine, cannot imagine how this hard thing I'm going through can possibly turn out okay, God is working. This is the flavor of Jesus' apocalypse. You know that the, the word apocalypse literally means revelation? It does not mean scare the heck out of you. That's not the meaning of the word in Greek. It literally means revelation. So here's Jesus giving his revelation. He tells them there will be false prophets who are dangerous little boogers. And he talks about wars and rumors of wars and all the calamities that evolve as a fallen world becomes more fallen. And yes, those are signs, Jesus says. But we will consistently misread them by believing the false prophets and by letting our worry lead and by mistaking the trees for the wind because we so hunger for thirsty because we want to make sure we have enough toilet paper in the house and enough canned goods in our bunker before the end comes as if those will be the great need at the end of time. In the 20 centuries since Jesus gave this word in Mark 13, there have been so many stories. Every generation has its stories of people who lean too much on the signs and too little on their relationship with Jesus. I remember that sad story to you from the 90s of the group who were convinced the end was coming, and so they put on their tennis shoes and put $5 in their pocket, and I think they poisoned themselves. Is that what they did? 39 people died that day. In 1843, William Miller became so sure that the end was coming that he begged people to believe him. He was convinced it would all be over on April 23rd, 1843. And he went from town to town begging people to please do something about this. You need to be ready. And so people became convinced, thousands of people became convinced that Miller was right. They called them Millerites. And that's different from those of you who drink Miller Light. Millerites. They gave away. Exactly. Yeah, in some ways. They gave away all their stuff. And April 23rd, 1843 came and went. And people had nothing. Just a small group of them hung together and what was left of them. And they formed what is now known as the Seventh-day Adventists. They were so sure. Remember what we said last week? It's not your doubts. 
that will destroy you, that your certainties, our agendas, the rules we've laid down that we want Jesus to abide by. So Jesus, is, he's willing to answer the questions that the followers have asked, but his answers will not scratch their itch because they're still not asking the right question. Rather than listening to the wind, they're, they're looking for trees. Years ago, I had a great conversation with Bill Reeder, who is Heather's stepfather. He, uh, we talked about the end times because his life, his studies, and his upbringing in this area are pretty strong. He has a real strong interest in it. I just didn't know much about it. So um, he, he's come to a healthy place. So we were chatting back and forth one day by email about end times theology, and he shared some insights that really helped me. I've hung on to him, and I want to read you a little of what he wrote to me. He said, prophecy shows the hand of a God who really does have absolute control. That's a really good definition, I think. Prophecy shows the hand of a God who really does have absolute control, but it also gives believers hope through the ages so that when we see the world fall into chaos, let the believers say amen. Thank you. When we see the world fall into chaos, we can rest assured that our God is in control and will surely see us through it. Let me say that again. When we see the world fall into chaos or when we see our personal lives fall into chaos, we can rest assured that our God is in control and will surely see us through it. Bill goes on. There will be dark times as the world falls into the days of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation, but God told us in advance what would happen, and so we don't have to fear. His hand is in it and on us, and we can depend on that. But listen to this part. We do not need to know about it in order to be saved or to become what he wants us to be. It's an added treat on his table, but it isn't the main course. The eternity of his love and our part in that love is the entree. Do you hear what I just said? The eternity of his love and our part in that love, that's the main course. That's good wisdom, friends. The revelation from God about what is to come, that kind of revelation is a treat, but it isn't the main course. This is the key message in Jesus' little apocalypse. I want you to read this uh, verse together. This is Mark 3, uh, excuse me, 1331. Go. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God is the main course. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the word made flesh which means the disciples were asking the wrong question. The question is not when will this happen or what will be the signs. The question is not when or what. The question is who. Who will see us through these birth pangs and into the new world? Who will outlast the rivers that dry up and the buildings that collapse and the governments that implode and the loved ones who die? Who will outlast the finances that run out and the relationships that fizzle? Who will outlast the cockroaches? The answer is 
Come on, people. Some of you are not convinced that Jesus will outlast the cockroaches in Augusta, Georgia. But I want to assure you, the answer is palmetto bugs, whatever. Are you from here? <laughs> yeah, they're roaches. It's where Yeats ends his poem. The last line of his poem is that we have to make room for the child born in Bethlehem. The center does hold if the center is Jesus. Which is to say, things fall apart, but Jesus doesn't. Things fall apart, but Jesus doesn't. In Isaiah, chapter 21, verse 22, God says the, to the people of Jerusalem and to all the surrounding region, I will place on his shoulder. He's talking about the Messiah here, whose name we know to be Jesus. God says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. You should find Isaiah 21, 22, and underline that, put a bookmark on it, so you can remind yourself on rough days, what Jesus opens, no one can shut, and what Jesus shuts, no one can open. John, in the book of Revelation, quotes that very line, which is to say that from the prophecies of the Old Testament all the way through to the last pages of the New Testament, the message is consistent and clear. The sinner does not hold if the sinner is Jesus. Excuse me, the sinner does hold. The sinner does hold if the sinner is Jesus. The end is not about signs. The end is about Jesus. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. In other words, if God has promised it, it's a done deal. And we can borrow hope on that promise. That's how the future becomes useful to us. I can borrow hope from the one temple that will still be standing when all the others fall. Revelation tells me that the temple is Jesus. I can borrow hope on that. Not all hope borrowing is equal. If your doctor tells you that eating Twinkies for every meal is killing you, but you persist in eating Twinkies for every meal, then you are borrowing from your future self, hoping somehow that your future body won't notice what your current life is doing to ease your pains. Twinkies may be a happy meal for you, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. We've borrowed from a future for the sake of being happy today. Does that make sense? The difference between that kind of borrowing and borrowing against the promises of God is that with the promises of God, there's no crash. We're borrowing from something that won't fail under the weight of the take, taking, from a temple that will not crumble. 
so I can act today like tomorrow's promises are true without penalty because, write this down, things fall apart, but God's promises won't. God's promises are a limitless resource. Any door he opens cannot be shut. So I don't... I don't even know how all this works in here, but I'm asking this question because I know how we treat the future. Half the time we are fatalistic and begging for a more certainty, and half the time we ignore consequences and borrow from our future selves. So the question is, in what area of your life are you borrowing from your future self to your own detriment? In other words, in what areas of your life are you trying to find certainty today at tomorrow's expense? And if that resonates somehow, what changes do you need to make so you can transfer your hopes to the promises of God, promises we can depend on? I want you to look at the last verse in this chapter, Mark 13, 37. This is the action step for Jesus' teaching on the end of time, and it's a very cool word he uses here. Let's read this together. It's on the screen. Go. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. (laughs) The Greek word used here for watch, which is used three times in this chapter, is gregoreo. It literally means to be awake or to be alive on the earth. (laughs) It's the word about being present to what God is doing in the world right now. It's not a word about being on guard for what some future event is going to hold that's going to smite you. No, it's, it's where is God at work now? That's what this word, how can I be awake to what God is doing now? How can I be alive to the great moves of God now? How can I train myself to become more awake to kingdom things now? Kingdom advances going on all over the world right now. How can I stay awake to what God is doing, not just so I make sure I get into heaven, but so my faith is stirred, so my call is stirred, so my destiny is stirred right now? What's our job description? It's to watch, but not in the way we might assume. It's not ours to fatalistically interpret every big hurricane or forest fire as a sign of the end of time, or worse yet, every election that doesn't go the way you want it to go. It isn't ours to follow after every charismatic leader who wants us to believe everything he or she knows for sure because she or he's told you that they've prayed about it and they know the Bible and they now see clearly where God has taken the whole world. The human Jesus did not know the answer to these things and I have not yet met somebody who is smarter than the human Jesus. What he did know is that the kingdom of God had, in some ways, already come. It was how he started his ministry, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It had, in some ways, already come, and it was still coming as his power and authority began to invade the earth, and it is still to come. And he didn't know, the human Jesus, how it would all play out or when it would happen, 
His followers may have thought the end was near, but Jesus didn't. And the Great Commission, which Jesus left us with, says absolutely nothing about passing a test about the end times. We have one job according to the Great Commission, and it is what? To make disciples, to enjoy God and give witness to his truth. So that's what watching looks like. Enjoy God. Be awake. And when you see him, give witness to his truth. It's about being awake to the great moves being awake to the gentle moves of the Holy Spirit within us, being awake to the voice of God, because the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. And so the end began there. And everything between that and the ultimate end for us is to journey as we enjoy God and give witness and listen to the wind, not the trees. The kingdom is coming. It is a slow inbreaking. And the kingdom of God will come. And nations will come and go. People will come and go. But the kingdom of God will endure. Things fall apart. But the kingdom of God endures. chapter 2 of the prophecy of Daniel, the prophet is interpreting a dream that his king had. He, he says, I'm paraphrasing, this is the dream. You will eventually die. <laughs> After that, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours, which he said, so he didn't get killed because he said, you will eventually die. And then another kingdom will rise up, and then another kingdom will rise up, and then finally there will be this fourth kingdom and this fourth kingdom, it will be strong as iron, and it will break and crush all the other kingdoms. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That word endure, that's a big word. We bring that forward into Mark chapter 13, verse 13. In, in the NIV, it says this. Everybody will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's one way to interpret that word, hupomeno. Everyone who stands firm. That verse in Mark is what we are talking about when we say in the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in the perseverance of the saints. They're there. They, they, they hang in. They stand firm. But the word, actually the Greek word, it literally, literally means, well, uh, and it can mean several things. It can mean to be patient. It can mean be steadfast, stand firm, to wait, which is interesting. Strong's Concordance says in the, in the New Testament this word is, is the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. In other words, his, his faith 
will not be destroyed by even the worst the world throws at it. Eugene Peterson says, this is that, use it in that word, he, he translated it this way, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Ironically, and this is what it literally means. It literally means stay behind, which is funny, isn't it? Since all the series about Jesus' little apocalypse are called Left Behind. When in fact, Jesus' one piece of advice is actually to, s- to step back, to wait, to watch. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful that you're going to be the only one left, you and the cockroaches sitting there, or the palmetto bugs, is that what you got to call them. <laughs> Linger. Wait. And the more I do that, the more I realize it is not what I thought it was, this waiting. At moments of spiritual clarity, I see that waiting is not the gap of emptiness between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, or the gap of waiting, the gap of emptiness between the thing I knew and the thing I'm waiting on. It's not a staring contest with God. We're not standing toe-to-toe waiting to see he blinks first. The tree trying to move the wind. Waiting is a discipline, an exercise meant to lengthen my fuse. Waiting builds character. So I'm struck by the term waiting and by that that phrase in the, in the New Testament especially, in the, in the Bible, the fullness of time, which is all about when God comes, he will come in the fullness of time. While the waiting may seem to stretch on as this empty space from my perspective, I am beginning to get it that from God's vantage point, this isn't space at all between here and here. It is full. It is rich. It is a basin of intangibles all designed to prepare me for the next thing, to prepare me for the great moves of God. So while I'm drumming my fingers or begging and pleading God for movement, for certainty, for something, the what and the when, God is no holds barred, working out his will in my life, shaping and preparing and stripping and educating and awakening, not just me, but all of us. I mean by all of us, all of us, the saints. And all of that has to happen. Jesus says, All the nations will come to hear about me before the end comes. So all of that has to happen before the end comes. So wait, wait, watch. Hang back a little. Teach your anxieties to shh. I want to ask you to stand with me. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.